Welcome to Nothing Champagne, a podcast that thinks re-election of government that's been in power for the past 13 years would definitely be a sign of change. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. So we are talking about uh, post-conference It's been post-conference season. You blink listeners and you miss it. Uh, but we've been keeping a close eye on all the party conferences. We're going to do three quick episodes uh, summarising what we uh, summarising what's come out of them, and this one is all about the theme of change. It turns out, Steve, that change was a big theme in a lot of the party conferences. It certainly was uh, in the Tory party conference where Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is still the Prime Minister, apparently. Hopefully, you know, it still might be by the time this episode comes out. And he's trying, he's very keen, apparently, to present the Conservatives as the party of change. Now, is there any particular reason why the Conservatives are trying to present themselves as the party of change? Well, as of about 30 seconds ago, I just saw a YouGov poll um, with the data collected over the past couple of days, uh, which uh, has the uh, Labour Party ahead 24 points uh, in the polls uh, over the Conservatives. Uh, Any other leader would be 40 points ahead. Obviously, yes. The the reason the uh, (laughs) the Tories are trying to portray, trying to change things up is because well, they are struggling in the polls. They are on a highway to getting an absolute pounding at the next general election, and something needs to change in terms of in order for them to actually start gaining in the polls. Uh, and one, what they need to kind of do is demonstrate that they have changed fundamentally, and that the Conservatives that we see uh, now under Sunak are a different b- bunch of Conservatives that we saw under Truss and that we saw under Johnson and arguably under May as well, if you want to go that far back. That far back, out of the dim and distant days. <laughs> to tw- what, 20, 2017? <laughs> well, yes, well, well, that was her peak, obviously, yeah. but 2019. Yeah. Was, you know, she was still Prime Minister in 2019, that's only four years ago. God, it seems so long ago. Is the fact that Conservatives want to try and own the change mantle also because essentially nothing really works in Britain anymore? The public realm is crumbling and uh, there are no spaces in prisons. The schools are falling apart because uh, the concrete doesn't work. Uh, The trains don't really work. And the uh, Conservatives, as well as seeing the headline polling, have probably seen that actually most voters want a change from whatever nightmare hellscape we're in at the moment and want to try and be in some sort of vaguely functioning 21st century democracy. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a very kind of like top level basic kind of view of elections, which is that it is either a change election where the electorate is ready to make a change or it's not a change election and they're happy to things to continue. And the general state of polling and everything else indicates that this is going to be a change election. So if it is a change election, the Tories, in order to try and save seats, if nothing else, never mind actually, you know, win and win or form a former government, uh, need to portray themselves in some form as a 
change because otherwise they're just defending their own record, which, as you say, isn't exactly great. There's basically two forms of election campaigns. As you say, the steady as she goes or there's time for a change. And it's very, very hard. I think it would be actually quite nonsensical to look anyone in the eye and say, we've got we've had a firm hand on the teller for the past five years. We've definitely not crashed the economy and caused your mortgages to go up. Re-elect us for another five years of this glorious period of competence. For a total of a yeah, basically they, they've been in power since 2010. Not necessarily in the uh, with majorities, but they've been in power since 2010. There's Conservatives, uh, and so we're already on 13 years. So trying to make a case that more of the same for a, for a total of 18 years is a very big ask. I don't I don't even think Linton Crosby could make that function. Um, so you are left with no alternative but to try and position your position the conservatives as well the current position the current conservatives as somehow different to the conservatives that just last year were voting in Liz Trust to be their leader or had selected Boris Johnson and were backing Johnson despite everything else that was going on and and everything so like if if it weren't of their own making I'd feel a little bit sorry for Rishi Sunak because he's between a rock and a hard place, but he he was a big part of how we got to all to this mess to begin with. But it's also so. I think the there are a couple of ways that they're trying to present themselves as change. So when Richard Sunak came in a year ago, it's a year ago this week that we're recording. Um, that uh, very excitingly, that Richard Sunak became prime minister, and he said that he would run a government of integrity and competence which was obviously seen as a very veiled thinly veiled attack on the Liz Trust debacle as well as the uh, Boris Johnson as well with a load of the Covid contracts and things when you talk about the integrity element and, and, and I think with Boris Johnson it wasn't so much the Covid contracts as just the incontinent lying Richard Sunak did I think have some space to do that because he was seen at the time as being more popular than his party. Problem is, that's now not the case. We, we talked when we, when we relaunched um, after our period of silence, we did talk about the fact that actually, okay, Rishi Sunak said that he would have this integrity, but then is calling Keir Starmer Sir Softy at PMQs, which isn't exactly this sort of beacon of integrity you might like. So the Tories are meant to be very good at this, uh, they are called the most successful party in the democratic world because the Tories have been able to change with changing times, often while they are in government, to win elections. You know, this John Major did it after succeeding Thatcher and won the 92 election. Um, Johnson did it with after May. Johnson does it after May. Uh, Macmillan does it after Eden and Suez. So there's a long history of this, and then let's face it: in the past, maybe it's almost in the past six years, we've actually maybe had too much change because we've gone from Cameron's economically right, quite socially liberal conservatives to May's more uh, socially conservative, but with a small C rather than full blown, and more sort of collectivist, yeah. sort of more economically left wing one nation Tories. Um, to Johnson's almost Gaullist, nationalist, 
to Liz Truss. Liz Truss was. Well, the, the, the very, very well-funded, economically <laughs> free market think tanks to a California tech bro. So you know, if Electra wants to change, I suppose they've had you know plenty of change. Plenty of change. I suppose the problem is where you go from here. So apparently, Dominic Cummings has been advising Rishi Sunak to uh, on this, and he said that the way that you could show this change is essentially to pick fights with your predecessors. So one of the reasons why it seems that HS2 was cancelled, which I'm guessing we'll probably talk more in a later podcast, is because that this would be criticised, and it was indeed criticised. Even David Cameron took a break from whatever he does in his shed to criticise the decision. Boris Johnson criticised it, which, okay, is probably less surprising. But that the idea was that by picking these fights, you can show the Tory party has changed. But the problem is, you've got when you're picking fights on policies that, broadly speaking, are. I don't know, HS2 is controversial in a lot of places down south, but I think, broadly speaking, up north, it's, uh, up north and in the Midlands, it's viewed as a good thing because it's investment, it's uh, into into the areas, investment in public transport and infrastructure, all things that you know the north needs, the Midlands needs. And these are the areas where you need to hold your seats. These are the er er areas where where you made unprecedented gains previously. So yes, you are picking a fight with previous conservatives, uh, previous conservative leaders on on a policy like HS2, but you're not bringing the people you need to vote for the conservatives with you on that. You know, it it just doesn't. It, it's such a such a shallow reading of the sorry, such a shallow attempt to kind of make that um, difference be 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 seen um, because it just goes ah policy that's something we can just change at the drop of a hat and that's basically what they did with HS2 they just decided to change it and then came up with some vague notions about what they'd do instead including announcing a load of projects which then were told no we can't do that or indeed had already been fulfilled and already been built even better yeah exactly who doesn't like like is you can't break your promise then it's already happened yeah it, it's just so shallow rather than actually get to, to to grips with the notion of what is it that people disliked about the previous conservative um leaderships and what caused the drifting in the polls and everything like that they've just gone for an easy answer but because it's an easy answer that also keeps the Tory MPs, mostly down south, on side, um, and so it's and it's one of those little things to, that it's worth adding in on this. Apparently, as after the um, Mid Bedford and um, Tamworth by elections, the, uh, the a number of letters have gone in to to the nineteen twenty two. Apparently, that the, the number that's been thrown around is about about, about twenty. So there is a definite, like, I'm not expecting enough things to get through to, to call a, a leadership election because I don't think the, the Tories are that suicidal. But it demonstrates 
that there is a an element of party management that still desperately needs to happen for Rishi Sunak. And so, so much of the announcements that were made like, around HS2 were, were not necessarily about distancing from previous leaders as uh, in terms of like trying to win over the electorate. It was distancing from previous leaders so that he can remain in control and in power. But I think it is, so I think the party management point is really interesting because it's why in his conference speech it was framed as change from the last 30 years of short-term solutions, which obviously conveniently misses out Mrs Thatcher, uh, but also means, I think for party management reasons, Richard Sunak can't just lump everything onto Liz Truss and Boris Johnson because they're still both quite popular in the Conservative Party. And what comebacks? Yeah, the, 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 that is very true. But the solution to that problem is to actually just go, okay, well, we can't, you know, make a load of headlines by attacking either Truss or Johnson or, or, or whatever. But what, you know what you can do? Get on with the job and actually solve problems. And that fundamentally is what they would need to do is actually go, okay, like Jeremy Hunt, Rishi Sunak, day one, get together and go, okay. How, what are the, the big issues that need to be resolved? We're not going to be able to do all of them. The best thing we can do is make a priority on one or two and we get give the funding for that. You know, all of that sort of thing. Um, so that you can at least demonstrate that, hey, we're working on stuff. Yes, the situation's not as great as we would want it to be economically, um, but over time that we'll, we'll be able to fix that. And uh, in the meantime... Here's us fixing, I, I don't know, it, it could even be quite, quite a narrow thing around a certain aspect of the NHS. You know, something like, um, uh, you know, A&E wait times. You know, just you, you make a, re a few relatively small um, uh, commitments to, to funding additional, um, I, I don't know, like ambulance staff or, or whatever to get people to A&E. You make some additional funding available so that you can staff A&E better or whatever so that those numbers can come down. And then people will have a pop more positive experience and then that you can at least talk about those figures and say, no, look, we did something different here and this is the positive impact we've had. But they're not going to do that well, because I, that's hard. Well, I suppose that's that's his point with his five pledges, isn't it, from the start of the year? So the halving inflation, action on small boats, reduce debt, cut NHS waiting time, stop small boat crossings. But then they've not necessarily actioned anything that's noticeable with it. I mean, the halving inflation should happen on its own back anyway. Um, the, the stopping the small boats is just a mad one because all you need to have is a single boat and you can, and people will go, well, you didn't succeed. Like so much of those are party management again um, rather than anything meaningful. And again, the NHS ones, you need actual solid policies. You need funding, and yet that's not being made available. But it's also the problem of... So, yeah, as you've hinted, that part of the problem is that these were meant to be modestly able to achieve, a bit like a sort of performance management meeting, and you've still not hit the modest goals you set yourself. And that's not great. But I think it's also, and Dominic Cummings is incredibly guilty of this, it's people who know how to disrupt things and think that disruption is all you need. And that can work very well in campaigns, but it doesn't work in governing, because you say governing is about doing stuff, mm -hmm. allegedly. Yeah, and also disruption own, Disruption works when you are the... What's the best way to put this? When you're not the big player. Like, if, if you, you in order to disrupt, you have to be the little 
you know, the, the, the smaller dog in the fight. Um, and ultimately, when you've been in power for 13 years, what are you disrupting against? You're disrupting against yourself, which means you still then have to make a case as to why previously you were bad. But so, but and it, it made you was able to do that in 1992 because the totemic issue of the poll tax. Yeah. Um, so you're in danger with your very reasonable comments at dragging me onto the second top pocket topic I want to talk about on the podcast about the curious psychology of the Tory Party. So let's park that thought. I think I want to talk, if we move on talk about the other thing you talk about the Tory Electoral Coalition. So and you, you've talked. And we have talked in several podcasts. I feel like we're ahead of the curve on this. That the problem the Tories have is you've got your red wall and your blue wall, and your blue wall is more to, to as you've hinted, people in the red wall wanted more money in their constituencies, mm -hmm. and you have Rishi Sunak as a fis fiscally conservative chancellor and now fiscally conservative prime minister who doesn't want to spend money on those things. But you also have a blue wall, which tend to be okay, they're more economically conservative, but they're also more socially liberal. And one of the reasons why Rishi Sunak's polling has taken a huge tank, and if you do want to laugh, do have a look at the YouGov polling of Rishi Sunak one year on, because essentially he's become as popular as his party now. And I think part of that is because it was clear, I think, to those of us top political pundits that we are, who'd kind of studied Rishi Sunak before he was famous, who knew that, okay, voters in the blue wall might like him because he seems, he, like the furlough scheme made him popular, but actually he is massively pro-lockdown. Dr. Death, apparently, was called by one of his scientific advisors. Um, he was uniquely placed to annoy the people in the blue wall whose votes he needed to keep the electoral coalition together. But also, the Tories in their conference, by talking about meat taxes and conspiracies around 50-minute cities, are also alienating those voters. Um, look at Cheshire and Amish and look at Mid-Bedfordshire. You know, this is, there's a, a, and when Ed Davey talks about change, and he talked about change a lot in his conference speech. He specifically mentioned the blue wall. You know that that is where the Lib Dems are going to go in there with their bar charts and their their sledgehammers and blue bricks and almost pledges on housing building targets, and and they they're gonna they're gonna disrupt in a way that only a focused leaflet can, aren't they, Mark? And hello, by the way. I mean, yeah, that, that is that is a is a thing, and that fundamentally is one of the issues actually that Sunak does need to deal with. And I think we probably have discussed this to, to death, and on previous episodes, is that it is a two pronged uh, attack that they're under. They're not just lo losing votes um, to to Labour; they're also going to be losing votes and seats to the Liberal Democrats. And though the the sorts of messages that appeal to winning back the conservative voters in the blue wall may not necessarily resonate with the uh, with the voters in what was once the red wall so you're left with conflicting like policy uh, agendas you're left with conflicting uh, priorities and as a result of that you end up being pulled this way and that and you can't you can't do anything to keep them both happy. It's why I wonder if, when the 2019 election is seen in context, I wonder if it'll look a lot like the election of 1906, 
where the Liberals won a huge landslide, but did so on the back of a voting coalition that was inherently unstable and essentially fell apart. I mean, RF Delderfield, I suppose, literally wrote the book, didn't he? RF Dangerfield, sorry. <laughs> Mr Dangerfield wrote the book on it. But essentially those tensions over votes for women and Irish home rule def um, meant that that, that 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 coalition fell apart. And you had lots of people, not to name names, but Matthew Goodwin, who were talking about this new alignment. And actually what seems to have happened is that, as you say, the voting coalition is really... There is, I think that there was potentially a space, but it really, really hasn't worked out like that. And actually it seems that you have a bunch of voters who did want change. You know, they voted for Brexit for change, voted Tory in 2019 for change, and it hasn't happened. Yeah. That fundamentally, and this is the this is the thing when people have supported you previously because you were change, and then you have failed to be be that change that they voted for. Well, you need to make a damn good case to give people uh, to to get uh, earn the right to to try try again, and you know they're not doing that very well right now. And someone who does know how to change a party, I suppose, is Keir Starmer because the Labour Party at conference was a very, very different Labour Party, the party of 2019. Um, and I think it's interesting that, again, we'll, we'll talk about the sort of policy nature and the tactical issue Labour has over its policies in a later podcast. But I thought he's, it's a pretty decent speech with the best speech they had as leader um, almost because of the glitter man, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that 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 glitter incident very much became the the, the defining moment of um, of the conference. Um, but you know, fundamentally, Starmer handled it very well in what genuinely would would have been quite a, a nerve wracking situation to have somebody come at you in that sort of situation in, in that sort of environment. Um, thankfully, it was just glitter, um, but you know. Um, things could have been a hell of a lot worse. Um, but he he responded well. He made a, 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 a couple of quips uh, about it and got back onto task. And again, like with so many, many things, Starmer is defined partially by the people who really don't like him. So if you're being... If you're, if, if people are seeing that he is annoying the wrong, the right sort, sort of left winger in some capacity to the extent they do something like this... It just adds to the notion that Labour has changed from what it was under Jeremy Corbyn, and um, and that's not just the case in things like the the Union Jack being over the conference hall, which again is sort of changed, but actually is the same thing that Keir Hardy was doing and Clement Attlee and Harold Wilson were doing. Yeah, um, but it's also I think it's the bit in his speech where he talked about how. Um, Essentially, the Labour government, a future Labour government, will have to essentially combine what happened in 1964 and 1945 and 1997. And there is this sense of, okay, yes, there is a big challenge here that needs to be um, uh, that, that needs to be overcome. I think the issue for Labour is how you how you sell that change without just having a laundry list of policies. 
and that's probably where we should stop and we'll talk about that in the next episode thank you very much for listening james crown designed the logo and dave depper composed our theme tune for good times happy plotting